background, Dan is also on the leadership team. He and Stephanie are at a wedding in Phoenix. So we, we did this um, retreat. We went to the Delta, um, real close by. We had a little Airbnb house. We met at a restaurant the first night. We just had a good time with food and being together, but also discussing that book and then also doing some business around what are elders and deacons and what is this process that we're entering into as a church. Um, we had a good time. Um, we started out with dinner at this place in Locke, in the old Chinese village of Locke. It's a historic town. And one of the things they do there is they have a ceiling covered in dollars that have been tacked up. You've, there's this way of folding the dollar around these quarters and you throw it up. And, and so it's a tradition now every year that one of us has to try to get a dollar stuck to the ceiling. And, and last year it was Jen, took her three tries. Um, this year I'm proud to say our newest member, Hilda, only took her two tries two tries to throw it and get it stuck to the ceiling. So I'll start with that and let you guys tell more about um, the retreat, whoever wants to go. <laughs> I wasn't there, so. Um, so I think Mark gave you guys all the highlights already. Thanks, Mark. You just about everything that we were going to talk about. Um, no, but I think, I think we came away... Um, Kind of excited. I think your leadership team feels excited about where we're going to go for this next year as a church. Mm. Um, you know, we were talking a lot about that book, All Saints, which some of you guys are reading. Um, and one of the things that we talked a lot about was just how, you know, with this that little church that was trying to s sort of struggle to save surviving, um, how God always provided. Provided, like that was the resounding theme through that book was God's <coughs> provision, and it wasn't just sort of in the material things, you know, money, finances crops. Um, it was really in uh, the people that God brought as well, um, that he brought those people there to that church to, to help build that church, to help um, nurture its flock, so to speak, um, and how everyone that God brought was really there for that reason, and God brought them there, right? Um, and we talked a lot about leadership, and I think as we talk about our church um, and where we're heading and we're becoming real church, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, this idea that, you know, the leaders that God has used in the past, uh, people like um, Moses and um, Peter or Paul, these people, they didn't know what they were doing, and I think mm. we feel that way too, <laughs> in some extent, mm -hmm. um, and as a church as a whole, you may be feeling like, well, what do I have to contribute to this church, or, you know, do I really, I have all this baggage, I have all these things, you know, this, I'm not ready, I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not, I'm just not there yet. Um, but actually, that's perfect. You're exactly where you are supposed to be, and you're exactly where we are so happy to have you here. Um, and I was thinking this morning as we were, as, as I was thinking about what to say, and the scripture that came to me was from um, the book of Esther, actually. Um, as for those of you who know the story of Esther, um, Esther was living in a time uh, where the Jew, there was a group of Jews that were in exile in Persia. Um, and Esther had found favor in the eyes of the, the king. Um, and he became, she became one of his wives. Um, and at that same time, there was another sort of uh, uh, leader um, who uh, was out to, to kill all the Jews, basically. Um, and Esther was a Jew. Um, but she had kind of kept her identity hidden and um, 
people didn't know that she was a Jew. And one of the things, um, as sort of this decree came out um, to, to basically annihilate the Jewish people in that land, um, you know, Mordecai, who was Esther's uncle, I guess, or something, um, came to Esther to ask her for her help um, with this decree so that the Jewish people wouldn't all be murdered. Um, and the, 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 uh, the scripture is um, Mordecai basically talking to Esther um, about you know, her place in all of this. Um, and it's you know, for such a time as this, right? Um, for if you remain silent at this time, uh, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. And it's this whole idea that, you know, mm. we're all here, those of us standing up here, but not just us, every single one of you down there. Um, yeah. We're all here for such a time as this. And so we're mm. kind of looking forward to seeing what that time is going to be. Um, so that's all that. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Can I adjust the microphone for yeah. you? Yeah. Hi, everyone. So um, as your newest leadership team member, I would ask that um, you just be gracious to me as I, I kind of get the lay of the land. And I feel like I'm talking really loud, but okay. maybe I'm not. You're good. You're good. OK. <laughs> um, so to kind of echo what, what Mark talked about a little bit earlier um, during the announcements, we had a pretty robust discussion on um, diversity and what that looks like at City Life. and just in our community. Um, again, with the, the book, it, it touches heavily on, on diversity. And like, so I don't want to give any spoilers to the book, but um, you know, there's some people in the book that aren't happy with this whole new group of uh, foreigners or outsiders coming in. Um, but it enriches their community and their congregation. Um, and just really allows them to flourish as a church and a community. And I think we can learn a lot from um, the book and in our um, diversity dialogue discussions um, that we have one coming up on the 25th. I would encourage you all to, to attend and, and read the book as well. Um, I think it's all just a pursuit of creating a community that really looks like God's kingdom and it's not just this group of people over here and that group of people over there. It's all, it's all together and that's what it's gonna be like in heaven, I think, so. Mm. Yeah, it was uh, an enriching discussion. Awesome, yeah. All right, thank you guys. All right. So yeah, we just, we felt obviously really, really um, good about the retreat, like God was at work and we wanted to let you guys in on that. Um, there's also a document, um, and I don't know if you're getting emails from City Life, or uh, I'm not sure if the link is in the worship guide, but there's a document where we are inviting people to put quotes or things related to that book that you've experienced. So it's kind of like a community document. Um, um, as you might expect, nobody's really entered in and put anything in there, except for us at our leadership team, we kind of put all our thoughts and our discussion in there. So you can kind of see what we talked about, um, but you could also add your own stuff and. Um, and most likely, if you do add stuff to that and, and favorite quotes and stuff, we'll probably 
bring those up here and say like, you know, hey, someone mentioned this and someone mentioned that. So it'll be a way of keeping the conversation going. All right, so we're gonna move in our worship service, we move towards um, listening to the word of God through the, the Christian scriptures. And so we're gonna have a reading and then I'm gonna give a sermon related to it. And Jen is our reader today from the Gospel of Mark. Today's reading is from Mark chapter 1, 29 to 39. It can be found on page 923 of the Bible's next year seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby village, so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our dear God, you are full of grace. And in this moment of silence, may we begin to imagine the reality that you have something to say to us in this time that will in some way enrich, heal, restore, do something in us that will make us more whole because that is what you do. May we truly open ourselves up now for what you have in store for us. We come with hurts that we're still processing, whether it's abuse, unfairness at the workplace or in family matters, whether it's sickness, um, disease, or grief, estrangement and alienation. We come with these kinds of things, sometimes a burden and a weight on us that we can't we can't even seem to see straight or relax for a second because of the pressure. Some of us are sitting here this morning with that kind of weight, and others of us are in the complete opposite kind of place. There's, there's a lightness and a joy that we've longed for or prayed for. And some of us come in other places, all kinds of different places we come, expressing the joys and the struggles of life. They're in our hearts, we bring them. And as we sit here, you see all of it. You see the beauty and the pain. You see the um, created goodness, and you see the mess. And help us to believe that you enter into it in the way that your stories of Scripture tell us, that you continue 
like Jesus did physically in the flesh, entering into the mess of our world and taking on the pain and brokenness for us, that you continue to meet us and meet our mess and our brokenness that way. That even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, that we are now in Christ more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And that that is the paradox of faith that we wake up each morning and attempt to live as if it's true. Once your spirit helps our hearts believe it. And so now in this time, may that grace and that, that truth of being loved pervade what we hear and what we take away. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you notice that the story ends with an ancient Near Eastern version of hide-and-seek and that Jesus is missing, and um, I believe, it, is it, is it um, Simon? Is he the one who goes after him? Yeah. Oh, they all went. Simon and his companions go looking for him. So it's hide-and-seek, Jesus style. And um, what we do these questions of the week, and you're welcome to fill one out. Uh, in the worship guide, there's a little slip of paper, and you can answer the question of the week, and we like sometimes to to hear those answers, and so I was projecting long ago what, what this message might be about, about and I, I was thinking, you know, so sort of a guess, and so the question of the week was, what's better, to hide or to seek? And some people said, to seek, but I do a lot of hiding. Someone else said, I think it's probably better to seek, but most often I hide. I mean, so there's a lot of, there's, I think there's a lot of us out there. Someone says it's better to hide. Someone says hiding, of course. And someone else said, as someone who always seems to hide, I find myself envious of seekers. Seekers seem to live their lives to the fullest. I love that, that just real honest reflection. But so as it turns out, I'm not really going to focus so much on the end of this story. There's so much in this story. There's almost like three parts of it. There's the, there's the healing of... Peter's mother-in-law, or Simon is the name he's, is used in the story, Simon's mother-in-law. Then there's a whole bunch of people coming to the house, showing up at the door, you just, just crowds of people to be healed, and all that healing and sending out of demons. And then there's the Jesus going to a solitary place to pray. And you can marvel over how Jesus, Jesus, if what Christians say is true, that he's the son of God, that he comes with divine presence, um, to our world, if that's true, then this, you, you imagine he's, he escapes to a solitary wilderness place for prayer. Um, I think we tend to think of we go to a solitary place or we go to pray in a moment of weakness or in our moments of need or because, you know, we're so empty. But you picture this God arriving as Jesus with fullness and yet still escaping to pray. And I think there's a really deep, almost a whole other sermon there of um, that for Jesus, just to be with the Father is kind of the default baseline best way things work. It's not about uh, whether there's a need or whether it's a good day or bad day. It's just this is this is goodness, the Father communing with the Son, and that is a message to us, really, about good day or bad, need or no need, plenty or emptiness. You just belong with God. 
So there's something there, but I'll move on because I want to talk today more about how um, what we see in the healing of Simon's mother-in-law. Now, Simon is Peter, and the ancient tradition of the church from very early on, um, and this is confirmed by sort of some literary analysis, the book, the Gospel of Mark, was attributed to Peter. And so Mark is this person that was sort of like this, like Peter's companion in ministry after Jesus ascended. So the idea is Mark wrote down, you know, kind of from Peter's telling of what, who Jesus was, what it was like. It's one of the, it's the shortest of the four gospels. It's kind of the quickest pace. It's very action-packed. There's not a lot of fluff. There'll be stories in, in Mark that are brief, and then maybe in Matthew or Luke or John will be, have more details in them. But what I want to say about all this is that this is, so this is thought of, and I think rightly so, as Peter's gospel. And what you see is that Christianity does something very unexpected, is that it tells the stories of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they codify and kind of lay down, this is what happened, this is what we saw, this is how it went. You know, these are the, the leaders, you know, John, Matthew, Peter, these are the leaders saying, this is what we saw. And what they end up doing is they end up making themselves look like schmucks who get it wrong. They use themselves as illustrations of getting it wrong over and over. They, they showcase their own failures and they allow the stories to be codified. They know they're going to get passed on. They know this is going to be the telling and they tell the story of Jesus even though they're now the ones left, they're the ones, we're the leaders, and they allow it to be a story told through their own complete abysmal failure. At every turn, they seem to be saying the wrong thing, assuming the wrong thing, rebuking Jesus for wanting to go through the path of suffering. All these ways, they just keep being the duh disciples. <laughs> and so... <laughs> You've got you to use that one as a preacher about once every two years. <laughs> and, and so they, they, they keep, and, they, and then what they also do is they give examples of other, others, not themselves, but others who get it right, the most unlikely ones. And so we, almost every Easter we mention how the story is told as the women are the witnesses in a culture where women's uh, testimony was not ex considered acceptable in a court of law. They allow the story of Jesus' resurrection to hinge on the witnesses who actually saw it, who were women. And through God's foresight to say almost, ha ha, you know, this is how it's going to happen. And the, the disciples themselves, the women go and tell them, and they don't believe. They have, they're like, eh, no, you're crazy. But they're the ones who it's revealed to. And in that same way, so here today, we see Simon's wife's mother being shown to us as the model and true disciple. She is like a paradigm and an illustration of being a true disciple. She exhibits the effect that you should expect if you're truly going to encounter Jesus and then respond rightly. And she is the model. Not, you know, and so this is rarely shown, this is not shown through the eyes of, oh, look at what John and James and Peter and these, you know, these guys that were named the, the apostles. No, it's this unnamed mother-in-law 
of Simon. Exactly, and so let me explain. There's two very important words in, uh, in the text that are kind of flags that sort of say, hey, something bigger is going on here. There's, there are two parts of this. One part of it is this really is just a healing of her sickness. And then all these other people come with their sicknesses and there's demons to be driven out. And so there is a story of this is a real life healing story. It's not just something to be used as a sort of a metaphor. It really is a story of Jesus brings healing into our lives and into our troubles and our brokenness. This really is part of the story. But a couple of things flag it as also sort of a, a template, a paradigm of how all of us can relate healing, you know, a physical healing or not, how all of us can interact and respond to Jesus. And these are the words. First of all, the word um, that, we, that we read it here is Jesus helped her up. Um, so we're looking at verse 31. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. And the, the verb there is the same ver verb used for Jesus rising from the dead. It's the resurrection verb. It, there's almost no doubt that it's, it's purposely used as a way of kind of saying there's more to this, to be read into this as a paradigm of what happens with Jesus. Jesus brings you new life. Jesus brings you from the dead. A Christian believes that in baptism, in the water up here is, is in the bowl, the baptism water, and we interact with that as we come forward for communion sometimes. We remember that in our baptism, the imagery is entering into Jesus' death and resurrection, and in that you are rescued and saved. You are given new life. That is the, you know, the core of it for the Christian. And so there's more here than just he helped her up. He brought her back to life. Jesus, the one who will die and rise from the dead. Okay, so there's that really cool thing. And then there's another verb that comes right after that in the next verse. The fever left her. Okay, so another side note. Preachers, we can't help ourselves. But when it says, when it says the fever left her, it's the same verbiage as the story before where it says the, the demon left him. And so it's, it's kind of Jesus casting out the you know, the things that are battling to take over. and So this fever is, leaves just as the demons would leave people. The fever left her. Okay, so that was a bonus. <clears throat> and then I lost my place. Okay, and then, and then she began to wait on them. And then that word is the word diakonos for deacon. For serve. So, so we've got just a loaded passage here. Just, and, and the order is everything. Okay, so she is given her life back. She is healed, you know, not just of her sickness. There's way more here. She's healed, and we are healed through the death and resurrection of Jesus in engagement with that through our baptism. To serve. The same word diakonos is used for deacon. Leaders of the church are called deacons because leaders lead through serving. So she is healed first in order to serve. The order is everything. And it drives us to ask ourselves a question, as anyone attending a church service should ask. Have I been brought back to life yet? Or am I trying to accomplish my way there? Which is exactly what most of us prefer. And so we're, most of us, most of the time, are going about life in a way that is reverse 
of how things work with Jesus. That we are trying to serve, 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 work, 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 so that maybe we will eventually feel whole and well and healed. Religions and even churches will major in that message. And you walk out feeling, you know, like this burden on your back, like, okay, maybe I'm a little bit inspired now to do more, to try harder to reach that point of peace and healing and wholeness. And Jesus, and we get this model through Simon's mother-in-law that you get healed first in order to serve. We have to ask ourselves hard questions. You know, it takes, to get this, it takes really looking at yourself, really stopping and asking hard questions. Am I going to church to learn, to learn spiritual CPR so that I can perform it on myself? That's almost a picture of the loop you get in on the religious path as opposed to what we talk about as the gospel path of you're not going to save yourself. You need a dramatic intervention. You need, to, you need to be healed. It's a difficult check on church people that we have to do on ourselves regularly, really. And really, I want to relate it to um, what's often talked about as the elder brother kind of spirituality or religiosity. There's the parable Jesus tells about the prodigal son. There's, a, there's an older elder brother and the younger one. And the younger one runs away and sins boldly and then comes back regretful and experiences this power of grace. The other one never really runs away. He kind of does things right. And in the end, he's joy, in a sense, he's portrayed as joyless and not entering into the joy of grace in, a, in the party because he's so concerned with unfairness and there's resentment instead of joy. And so, basically, I'm saying the elder brother approach is to be over here, work, 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 to get your healing, to get what you think is the good life. But in the end, you're never really healed. You're never really full of joy. <clears throat> Let me read something from Henry Nowen on his book about the prodigal son story. He says, the lostness of the elder son, however, is much harder to identify. After all, he did all the right things. He was obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, and hardworking. People respected him, admired him, praised him, and likely considered him a model son. Outwardly, the elder son was faultless. But when confronted by his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly, suddenly there becomes glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person, one that had remained deeply hidden, even though it had been growing stronger and more powerful over the years. He says, looking deeply into myself and then around me at the lives of other people, I wonder, which does, which does more damage, lust or resentment? There is so much resentment among the just and the righteous. There is so much judgment, condemnation, and prejudice among the saints. There is so much frozen anger among people who are concerned about avoiding sin. Just sit with that as a way of asking yourself hard questions. 
Questions like, am I grouchy? Am I temperamental? Am I agitated in my attempts to live the right way? Is there a surprising absence of joy? And in their place, there's resentment, maybe even accusation. The sort of a way of interacting with community and individuals and family that kind of that basically says, you know, I'm going to take my bat and go home if it continues to be like this. Remember that from the young days as a kid? It doesn't have to be a baseball bat, right? It could be the soccer ball. It can be the dolls. It can be whatever, you know. But it's a way of kind of controlling. It's a way of operating the realm of me, 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 my way. Threats to leave, if not tended to properly, I'm, I'm going to go. In the end, what it is, this approach spiritually is going about things, going about your work, and you may even have the best model of servant, you know, serving the world. You're fixing the world one hour at a time, one volunteer opportunity at a time. And yet you are an unfixed fixer. You are an unhealed healer. And in the end, you know, you're just going to crumble. It's, it's service built on no foundation. It's a, it's a recipe for spiritual burnout and frustration to work and to serve first without being served and healed first. Especially for those of you out working in the world in, in, in service you know, in interpersonal service kind of work in which you are doing amazing things and have huge opportunities to make an impact on lives, broken lives, sick lives. If you kind of view yourself as the savior, then you're going to look around and see how, first you're going to see how others aren't living up to it the same way you are, and that's going to build up resentment. And then secondly, you're going to see like in the passage the overwhelming amount of brokenness brought to your door. I love the phrasing of this. The whole town gathered at the door <laughs> after Simon's. And isn't that our world? Looking out and going, ugh. If you, you know, this feeling, if I'm going to put myself out there to serve the world, make the world a better place. Wow. Never-ending need. And so if you go at that with a sense of lightness because you've found healing, you've been put back together, it's not relying on you, you've let God in to heal, then you're taking the path of Peter's mother-in-law. The transformative power of letting Jesus be your healer. One of the hardest parts about that is admitting that you are sick. <laughs> admitting that you need intervention, that you are, in, in language of the Bible, a sinner in need of grace. You need healing. We, we, um, I don't know if, if you just maybe mumble these words if you're a regular here, but earlier in the service we, we entered into a time of, of confession and assurance of forgiveness. And, and so I don't know how if your mind just spaces out and you go to wherever, or if you're engaged, you know, we have our good days and our bad days with that, but then you hear those words. Do you hear them? Know that you are forgiven and be at peace. In order to experience that peace, you need to 
acknowledge, in order to enter in for that to be real, you need to acknowledge that you are agitated and unpeaceful and broken without intervention, without forgiveness. Henry Nouwen continues. Let me just read something, uh, how he kind of wraps this up. More daunting than healing myself as the younger son is to heal myself as the elder son. Confronted here with the impossibility of self-redemption, I understand Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Do not be surprised when I say you must be born from above. Indeed, something has to happen that I myself cannot cause to happen. I cannot be reborn from above, that is, with my own strength, with my own mind, with my own psychological insights. There is no doubt in my mind that this, uh, about this because I have tried so hard in the past to heal myself from my complaints and failed and failed and failed until I came to the edge of complete emotional collapse and even physical exhaustion. I can only be healed from above from where God reaches down. What is possible for me is possible for God. With God, everything is possible. Let's pray. Our God of grace, meet us in this moment of silence that we might hear and receive the grace you have to offer us. May we see that the easier path, that the wide road is the road of self-redemption, accomplishment, and climbing our way to you. And that the narrow road, the hard path, is to invite you to do the work that's most necessary and to heal us in, our, in the deepest ways sometimes that we haven't even looked at yet. Would you give, it, give us the courage and the faith to invite you into those places and to spend time letting you in? We pray in Jesus' name.